our Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. This morning we are going to look at standing on God's promises as we look at the life and continue to look at the life of Abraham. Now in our in our last study we were dealing with the fact that even after God has uh, delivered Lot back to Abraham and uh, after that war that uh, Abraham went after uh, the kings of the east so that he could recover Lot, uh, even after all of that, after all that God has done, there was a tremendous amount of fear and disappointment in Abraham because he hadn't seen any promises. Ten years down the road, God had promised that he'd have a son. Uh, Ten years down the road, you know, there was uh, this promise of of the land. And, and of course, uh, he was just wondering, Lord, I mean, you know, if it's just going to be the servant in my household, then we'll we'll let Eliezer be my my heir. And God says, no, no, it's not going to be Eliezer. It's going to be someone that comes from within you. Uh, You will bear children. No matter how old you are, and no matter the, the very fact that your wife is is barren, now, I'm God. I can take care of all of that. But the way that God begins to reassure him, we find in verse five. We'll start reading there in verse five of Genesis 15, where it says that He brought Abraham forth abroad, which means He brought him out of his tent, and He said to him, "Look now toward heaven." And tell the stars. He said, try to number the stars. If thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord. It it brought that reassurance. All all that that Abraham had to do was just to look at the stars. And he realized, God says, you see, as many stars as you can see, that's how many children you're going to have. You can't count them. And so he believed in the Lord. He trusted the Lord. And, he counted, and, and God counted it to Abraham for righteousness. But then notice verse 7. God speaks to him again. And he says unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, and that is Abraham said to the Lord, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me a heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against the other, or one against another. But the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them. Away. In mechanics, there is a law that relates to inertia, the property of all matter that makes bodies resist any change of motion, resist any force that puts them in motion, or that speeds up or slows them once they are in motion. Because of inertia, some outside force must always be applied to produce motion. 
That physical law can illustrate a spiritual law for us today. Abraham was in motion in Ur of the Chaldees, but he was in motion in the wrong direction. He was heading to a lost eternity. Now think about that in your life before you came to know Jesus Christ. You were in motion in the world. You, but, but the motion in which you were going was, was in a totally different direction than the way that God would have us to go. But we were heading in that direction, apart from God, away from God, and certainly we would become separate from God had we continued in that. It was the same with Abraham. He was heading to that lost eternity of eternal separation from God. And with every passing hour, he gathered momentum. Do you ever feel that way when you were in the world? You were just gaining more and more momentum toward hell. And then suddenly, he stopped. He turned around and set in motion toward Canaan and toward heaven, toward eternity with God. What was that factor? God tells him that in verse 7. He said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. You see, that was the work of God's power. That was the working of God's power in Abraham's life. And it is the very same work that was done in our lives when we were headed in the totally wrong direction. And then God stopped us and turned us around. God's work. God's power. Now, the building of Abraham's family then was also the work of God. The same power that that flung the stars into space and set them in motion, only now expressed in spiritual terms rather than physical, was at work to secure Abraham not only a seed, little s-e-e-d, the seed of descendants, but also seed, capital s-e-e-d, the promise of the Messiah the promise of Jesus Christ. Which promise was given way back in Genesis chapter 3. And we'll see it in a moment. But it would do us well, you see, at this point, to review the four great events in Genesis chapters 1 through 11 and see how all of this ties into God's plan for the ages and God's plan for you and God's plan for me. Now the four great events of Genesis chapter, chapters 1 through 11 are these. First of all, the formation of the universe. We call that creation. That was the first great event. Secondly, came the fall of man in chapter 3 of Genesis, what we can classify or label as the corruption of man, and really of the universe. Because man sinned, because Satan as the serpent had deceived Eve, that man fell and corrupted all that God had called at one time good. The third great event then after that was the flood of Noah. Now it wasn't, because, it wasn't like Noah's flood as if he caused it, of course. But most people call it Noah's flood because, or the flood of Noah because Noah was the one who was saved from the flood with his family. 
And that brings to mind then the, cat, the catastrophe that would take place because of man's sin. We could even call it the condemnation of judgment. And then the fourth great uh, event was the fallout of man's rebellion. Even after God judged the world and the people that came through Noah's sons, as they spread throughout the world, there was that one group that, that God made clear to us in, in, in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. That group that was in the plains of Shinar in Babylon where they built the tower. It marked the confusion of man and how God had to confuse the languages because of what, God, of what man was, was thinking of themselves as being apart from God. The four great events. Now, in chapters 12 through 50, in chapters 12 through 50, there are four great people, not four great events, but four great people that are focused upon. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And we realize then that uh, God's promise to Abraham was indeed fulfilled. Abraham did have a son with his wife Sarah, whom they named Laughter, Isaac, Isaac. And from Isaac came Jacob and another son named Joseph. Very important throughout the whole of the book of Genesis from here on. And why is this all important? Now, it's, it's important for us to understand a couple of things. Let me give you just a little bit of fact here. The first 11 chapters deal with 2,000 years of time. Chapters 12 through 50, though, deal with only close to 300 years of time, but are the most significant of years because of the birth of the nation of Israel through Abraham. And so, why is all of this important to us today? Because we know that Genesis marks the beginning of everything, except God, because God has no beginning, God has no end. He's eternal. And what we need to remember is that God's selection of a nation so that he could bring his son, Messiah, into the world, that through that nation the world might be saved, is key to understanding the rest of Genesis as well as the rest of the scriptures. So understand then that chapters 12 through 50 is uh, these chapters as a whole are God's response to mankind's rebellion. This is God's response to mankind's rebellion. His response to those four great events and to man's rebellion was doing what he said he was going to do back in Genesis chapter 3, which was to produce the seed of the woman that would bruise the head of the serpent who is Satan. And as God said directly to Satan in Genesis 3.15, he said, And I will put enmity or hostility between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That is speaking of Jesus. Jesus will come, and he will indeed, and he has, because of the cross and because of the work on the cross, already crushed the head of the serpent. But in so doing, it bruised his heel, didn't it? Which is just really kind of figurative in the, in, in the sense of saying that he died. But he rose again. 
So understand then that the seed would come through the nation of Israel. The seed would come through the nation of Israel, promised now, promised to a man who was aging. He was getting up there in years. He was old. And had a wife who was infertile or infertile or barren. And she was aging as well. And God says, listen, it's okay. I can take care of this. Trust me. And the promise was given in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord has said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country. You know, this was not a nice plea in a sense. I mean, you know, God is always gracious and merciful when he speaks. But he doesn't say, you know, if you really want to, just go ahead and leave. No, he says, get out. You know, when God tells you to get out, get out. And Abraham did that. He says, get out of thy country, from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show you. I'll show it to you. You don't even know where you're going. And of course, Hebrews tells us that. The book of Hebrews tells us he, he, he went out in faith, but he didn't know where he was going. That's okay. God directed him. And then it says, and I will make of thee a great nation. He's not saying, Abraham, go out and, and, and just gather people together. He says, no, out of you. That's what you have to understand here. Out of you, there will be a great nation. I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. Understand, when it is saying this, it is saying it in context. God is saying it in the context of saying, Abraham, I am going to make of thee a great nation. And you and your nation, those who bless you and that nation, will be blessed. Those who will curse you and that nation they will be cursed. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Why? Because out of Abraham would come the Messiah. And he has blessed all nations. How? By all those in those nations who have seen Jesus and seen the cross and know what it means, know what it represents, and have responded to him by faith and trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior. So back in our text now, the Lord reminded Abraham of a very significant fact. That God saved him for the purpose of giving him the promised land. He had already promised him seed, but now he tells him, I have saved you for the purpose of giving you the promised land. Notice, first of all, how God identified himself. He says, I am the Lord, Y-H-W-H, Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is the name of God. We sometimes use the word Yahweh or Jehovah, and those Yahweh is closer to it. But you know the Jewish people—they they don't pronounce the name. Why? Because it's it's too it's too holy to pronounce. So they just call him Hashem, which means the name. And so he says, "I am the Lord. I am the name, the God of redemption and salvation." This is what the name is, folks. He is the God of redemption, the God of salvation, the God who establishes a personal relationship with people and enters the covenant of redemption with them. That's how full this name is. Isn't that a wonderful name? Okay, then he says, in essence what he's saying to Abraham here is, I am the Lord who saved you, called you out of the Ur of the, called you out of Ur of the Chaldees for the very purpose of giving you this covenant, the covenant which includes both the promised seed and the promised land. That is the promise God is saying. He is reassuring Abraham of the promise that he has given him. 
and, and, but, but, but again, there's something to take note of here. He tells him that. And what do we see that Abraham does? Well, you have to go back to the fear and disappointment that he shared earlier on in the chapter. Because that fear and disappointment of Abraham had been so terrifying to him that now he asks the Lord for more and more reassurance. Now, there are some people that say, oh, listen, oh, poor Abraham, he fell back into doubt. I don't believe that he fell back into doubt, honestly. I I believe he's doing what we would do. You know what that would be? Well, Lord, can you show us a little bit? Can you show us a little bit of something so I can have a little bit of assurance that we're okay? I mean, I I trust you. I believe you. But I'm human, Lord. i got to see something. Now, don't tell me that we don't do that sometimes with the Lord. i got to see something. That's not always right. I mean, because, in, in fact, we should trust the Lord. Amen? But we just need some assurance. Abraham was in flesh. You and I, you and, and I were in flesh. So what does he say in verse 8? He said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? How am I going to know? In essence, what he was saying is, can you give me a sign? Which brings to mind the very fact that later on, even Jesus and the apostles would say, well, you know, the Jews are always seeking for a sign. Well, they must have learned it from Abraham. <laughs> because all they wanted was a sign. It's not always bad to ask God for a sign. Because here we don't see that God says, you know what, Abraham, I thought you trusted me. Well, you know what, I'm just going to turn you into a pile of ashes. Does he do that? Does he get mad at him? Does he spank him? Does he take him to the woodshed? No. He hears him. Abraham says, "Uh, how am I going to know? Maybe this will help you. It helps me. That Abraham just wanted his faith to be strengthened. Don't we all want our faith to be strengthened? I just, I just want my faith to be strengthened every day. So I get into God's word. I read it and I study it. I, I just want to be assured. And we have his word. See, Abraham didn't have a Bible like we have. But he had the word of God. He had a personal relationship with God. And God spoke to him. But see, here's the thing. Every day, we get into God's Word because we want that assurance every day. And he just wanted his faith to be strengthened. Strengthened. He wanted to be so rooted and grounded in God that he would never again question God's promises. And the more we get into God's Word, the more we trust in the Word of God, the more we, we just realize, I don't have to question God about these things because He's faithful. But it's always good for us to be reassured, isn't it? And so he asked God for a specific sign that, that, would, that would absolutely confirm the promise or the covenant of the promised land. And the Lord heard Abram's request. He didn't scold him. didn't get mad at him. And I love that about the Lord. No matter how long you've been with Christ, no matter how long you've been with the Lord, He still loves you. You know, if you've been with the Lord for 20 years and you, and you tell him something or you, you say, oh, Lord, can you assure me? He doesn't go, Ew. Ah. We'll stand in the corner. 
or whatever. No, he, he doesn't do that. He, he hears. And you know what he does? He moves to give Abraham a visible sign that would establish the covenant forever in Abraham's mind. So notice verses 9 through 11. God says to Abraham, Take me a heifer of three years old. That's just a cow. Take me a heifer of three years old. And a she-goat of three years old. And a ram of three years old. And a turtle dove. And a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these. Now, what it's saying is here, Abraham was obedient, number one. Secondly, what it tells us is that God told him, go get these animals. And Abraham went to his own flocks. And what that is telling us is that there is sacrifice involved when God makes a covenant with us. Now, the turtle dove and the pigeon, they were just birds that were around. But the other animals, they were Abraham's. Now, the other thing is that he brings them and it says that he divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not, which, which tells us very simply that Abraham knew what God wanted without asking him, what do I do with these animals? Because it was the custom of that day uh, for men that when you made a covenant with someone over something, you took an animal and you split it in half, you parted the animal, and you both walked in between the two pieces to make the covenant. That is why when God says, I'm making a covenant with you, he says, literally in the Hebrew, I am cutting a covenant with you. We cut covenants. The, the, the terminology is still used today. The cutting of a covenant. Abraham knew because it was what was done in his culture. And that went on, as we'll see in just a moment, even into the times of the prophets. So anyway, he, he takes and he divides these things. And of course the birds he doesn't, divide, he doesn't cut up. He just puts one bird on one side and one bird on the other. And then it says, when the fowls came down upon the carcasses and Abraham... Abram drove them away. Now, first of all, notice the animals that God commanded Abraham was to provide. One each of the five acceptable sacrificial animals. A cow, a sheep, a goat, a dove, and a pigeon. These were the five acceptable animals for a sacrifice. They were all to be three years old, or at least the, anim- the, uh, the larger animals were Birds may not have a lifespan that long, but nonetheless, the, the, the other animals, they, you could tell they, how old they are. And that's, they sometimes kept them that way. But they were all to be three years old, which meant that they were fully grown and they were mature. In, in essence, they were perfect, because the word perfect means to be complete. And, and uh, each animal must have attained the perfection of maturity, for nothing but a perfect sacrifice could be used for the ratification of God's covenant with man. Now think about that in terms of who was on the cross for us. Jesus, at the age of 33 years old. Now at the very age of 30, he was already considered perfect as far as complete as a, as, as a man. So you see, it wasn't Jesus as a child or as a as a, a young uh, adolescent. There was a, uh, a sense that we need to understand that here. The dove and the pigeon were probably included because the sacrifices must be within the reach of all in the sacrificial system. You know, especially when they had the temple. 
And they had the, you know, the, the, the money changers were there because uh, people exchanged certain things for the money that they needed to pay for, you know, the, the various animals that they had available. A rich family could actually get a, a cow, you know, for their, their sacrifice for their family. But the poor families, and there were more poor families than there were rich families, they had to use things like little pigeons and little doves. That was their sacrifice. It was the same way in Jesus' time. As a matter of fact, that's what Joseph and Mary offered unto the Lord. So you see, even sacrifices are to be within the reach of all. So this is, this is just, what it's doing here is that the Lord was certainly laying down a precedent for the sacrificial system, which of course points to the cross of Jesus Christ. Who did Jesus Christ die for? He died for all. Rich, poor, young, old, you see. The cross is within the reach of all. Now, take note that the covenant ceremony, as I said before, would involve the cutting of the larger animals into halves and laying each piece opposite each other with a walking path between them. So it's like laying all the the pieces here and over here, and there is this walking path right down this aisle. There's the animals, and you walk down the path. So the dove and the pigeon were left whole and laid at one end of one row and the other at the end of the other row. But the idea of the the covenant and the contract was this. That each party entering the covenant was to walk down the path between the pieces of sacrificed animals. And as they're walking down the path, they are actually stating what the covenant is about. What is the agreement being made? So they're making the statement, this is what we are agreeing to in our covenant. But that's not all that they would declare. They also declared this promise, that if they fail to keep the covenant, then they deserve the same fate as the animals. Something that can be seen many, many years later in the book of Jeremiah. For in Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 18 and 19, we see God speaking about the failure of keeping the covenant by the princes of Judah and Jerusalem. By God's own people. And notice what it says there in verses 18 and 19 of Jeremiah 34. God says, and I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant. In other words, they failed to keep the covenant that they made with me. Which have not performed the words of the covenant which they had made before me when they cut the calf in twain. Which means they cut the calf in two. And passed between the parts thereof. So they went through this ceremony. The princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, and the priests, and all the people of the all the people of the land, which passed between the calves or the parts of the calf. Thousands of years later, it was the same way, and the symbolism was to be very plain. The symbolism was plain. First, this is a covenant so serious it is sealed with blood. Always remember that. Always remember how precious the blood of Jesus Christ is to your salvation. Always remember the price that was paid for our eternity. Secondly, if a person breaks this covenant, let this same bloodshed be poured out on their animals and on them. That was the consequence of the breaking of the covenant. That if a person breaks it, 
that same bloodshed will be poured out on them. And again, notice something else. God doesn't appear immediately, does He? He doesn't appear immediately to take part in the covenant ceremony. A ceremony that, as, as I mentioned before, Abraham would have been familiar with culturally. Which means, okay, we've got the parts out. Where are you, God? Where are you? I've got them split, Lord. The birds are coming down. I'm, I'm having to do, you know, shoo them away. Where are you? Well, let's remember something. First of all, remember that God's timing is always perfect. So we need to uh, see how important that is here. God's timing is always perfect. So what is important here is not so much that God isn't there yet. What is important is that Abraham was faithful in obedience to the Lord in preparing things until the Lord would appear. And you know what? That that still holds true for us today. Are you preparing for the coming of Jesus Christ? Are you, as believers in Jesus Christ, preparing for the coming of the Lord? Doing everything that, <clears throat> doing everything that God has commanded you to do? As far as living a life of faith? As far as living a life of devotion before the Lord? Having a good relationship and a good fellowship with God? Are you sharing the word of God with people? In other words, are you being a good witness of, of Jesus Christ? Are you doing all of these things? Are you preparing for the coming of Jesus Christ? See, we don't do these things for salvation. We do them because we're saved. We do them because we trust that, God is, that, that, that Jesus is coming soon. So are we preparing? As Abraham prepared, God told him, just get everything ready. And then I'll be there. In the meanwhile, what was God teaching Abraham because of this? God was teaching Abraham about the misery that is involved with sacrifice. Folks, please listen to this. God was teaching Abraham about the misery, the sorrow that can be involved in sacrifice. Because sacrifice always foreshadows the cross of Calvary. Sacrifice in the Old Testament always foreshadows the cross of Jesus Christ. He taught Abraham that the land would be occupied against much opposition. There would be a lot of opposition for the children of Israel in the land. Is that still not true? Or is it still true today? It's still true, isn't it? There was much opposition in the children of Israel being in the land then. And over thousands of years, they come back into the land Did anybody welcome them with open arms? Did their neighbors welcome them with open arms? In May of 1948, they were about ready to get killed the day after they were declared a nation. On May 14th, they were declared a nation by the United Nations. On May 15th, they were fighting for their existence. Been that way all the way through. And see, he's teaching them about this issue, what God has prepared. That's why he says in verses 11 and 12, when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, that Abram drove them away. 
And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. Think about that darkness for just a moment. Because it was exactly just such a horror that enveloped Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. That day that Jesus died on the cross was no normal day. For as Jesus was put on the cross, something did happen. The Gospels tell us that the height of the, of the sun, when, when the sun is to be at its zenith, midday, everything became dark. The Son of God, God the Son, the Messiah, the Anointed One, was hung on the cross for our sins. And everything went dark. The day was dark. It was as night. Abraham foresaw that darkness. when this covenant was being prepared. The seriousness of the work of Jesus Christ for us. The seriousness of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. That's why we can't play games with God. That's why we can't play games with his truth. Make it seem like all those things that happened 2,000 years ago don't really matter today. They still matter and they matter for eternity, folks. Don't ever think that God just sent Jesus so that we can all have Cadillacs and Rolls Royces and big houses and all of these other things. As some people will teach you or try to teach you. With you, I say they try to teach you, but they ain't going to do it because you know what the Word of God says. Jesus died for the sins of men. And he shed his blood to pay that price. Now the birds in the Scriptures are often used as symbols of enemies. Israel has their enemies. But it's also a symbol of the enemy. One of the clearest usages of this symbol is found in Matthew 13, where Jesus teaches of the sower and the seed. A sower being a man who would go out like a farmer and just have a big bag of seed, and he would go out to plant, and he just start scattering. That's sowing, sowing the seed. And Jesus spoke many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. And so birds are used frequently to symbolize the powers of the air, the evil spirits that prey upon men's souls. Uh, Paul deals with this when he writes in, in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, when he's dealing with, with the armor of God. He's saying that we need to take up the armor of God. Why? Because we 
deal daily with the principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness and the wickedness that are in high places. These are those same spirits, the evil spirits, the power of the air. Paul talks about it as as working in the sons of disobedience. The birds in our text, the deep sleep uh, that fell upon uh, Abram, the the darkness, the horror, those things all brought home to Abram the fearful cost of the covenant into which the Lord was bringing him. And in a small measure, it was the horror of the cross. What has happened today with the cross? In essence, it's just become an ornament of jewelry. But I can tell you this, that cross that Jesus hung on, there is still power in that cross to save people's lives for eternity. But that message is being weakened today because we don't want to offend people. The cross is offensive, isn't it? The blood of Christ can be offensive to a lot of people. But for us, it is our life. It is our eternal life. And we can't play with that. And so Abram was watchful. He had laid out the pieces for the, of the sacrifice, uh, you know, for the covenant. He laid them out and he had to keep chewing away these, these uh, scavenger birds that kept wanting to take meat from those carcasses. He was remaining watchful. And this is important to, to, to note that watchfulness <laughs> is particularly difficult when you're struggling with unfulfilled promises. Just as Abraham was struggling with, un, with God's unfulfilled promises. It's hard <clears throat> to deal uh, with things, you know, to be watchful. But he remained faithful. And he watched. Because it may seem as though there is no need to watch since nothing is going to happen in the minds of some people. Well, nothing's going to happen. Nothing has happened yet. So, yeah, why, why watch? Why should I even pay attention to what's going on in the world? Because, you know, I mean, God promised, but, you know... Uh, Nothing's going to happen. Really? Of course, the enemy of our souls and his demonic forces tried to discourage Abraham with doubt and unbelief. And he'll do the same with us. He's been trying to do the same with us since we came to Christ. Make us think that the promises of God are not really anything to worry about or anything to really be looking forward to. I don't know about you, but throughout the scriptures, especially the New Testament, whether it's Jesus or the apostles or the writers of the of of the letters to the to the church. They're all telling us we need to be watchful. We need to be careful. We need to be waiting for the Lord. So, you know what we need to do? We need to quit listening to the lies of the of the enemy. We don't have to believe or even listen to his lies. We don't have to listen to his lies, folks. Come on, tell me something here. Because, you know, we don't need to listen to him. I I was telling you this last night. You know, I was just saying, I mean, I'm passionate about this. We don't have to listen to the lies of the enemy. I said that last night. Hey, wake up. It's evening. But there's still light outside. Please. Understand, we don't have to listen to the lies of the enemy. We need to trust in the Lord and in his promises And the promises that He has made to you, we have them here from Genesis to Revelation. We have His promises. And you can believe them, even though you may not see them all fulfilled before the day that we go home. We can believe them. 
because God made them. But in so doing, we need to be watchful. We need to be mindful of what's going on. Because Peter, 2,000 years ago, tells us in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, be sober, be vigilant. To be sober means, you know, well, it, it means what it means. Nowadays, we have a problem with people being sober because of, 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 of the things that they put into their, into their bodies. <clears throat> so what does it mean? We need to be watchful, awake, and aware. As believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be watchful, awake, and aware. And then we need to be vigilant. Why? What does it mean to be vigilant? It means to be, we need to be ready at all times. Now, one thing is for sure. Because we're in physical bodies, we need rest. We need sleep. We, we, need, you know, we need to trust the Lord to give us that time of rest. And He's going to take care of us because He's always awake for us. All right, but when you get your rest, then be vigilant in your life. And there's a reason why He says this. Because your adversary, the devil... As a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. So Peter is telling us, listen, be sober, be vigilant, be watchful. Because you have an enemy and he's trying to destroy you. And he's trying to destroy all that is around. But then he tells us in nine whom resist steadfast in the faith. We are to resist the enemy steadfast, standing fast in the faith. Are you standing on the promises of God? Because when you stand on the promises of God, you are resisting the enemy who tells you those promises are not true. Are you standing on the promises of God? Knowing that the same afflictions are being experienced or accomplished in your brethren there in the world. You're not alone in this struggle, folks. You are not alone. Pray for those on the other side of the world that are, that are living, I mean, really living to stay alive as servants of the Lord, but willing to die for their faith in Christ. They understand the suffering, you see. But they are watchful. We need to be watchful. We can't be presumptuous with God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he stand, taketh he, or take heed lest he fall. There are people today who just, you know, think that, uh, you know, they're safe because they, they go to a church. Or they just walk into a church and they're, oh, we're safe here. No, 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 no. Some people think that they're safe because they just said a prayer. Well, I said a prayer today. Well, I'm safe. No, 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 no. Is that what saves you? See, they think they're standing, but they will be the first ones to fall. And Paul says, wherefore, let him that think he stand, take heed, take heed and watch, lest he fall. Take heed of your life and of your walk, of your steps. If you think you stand, no, make sure you stand. Make sure you're standing. That's why Paul says, examine yourselves to see that you're in the faith. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast. In other words, stand fast, unmovable, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Stand fast in the Lord. Be unmovable in the things of God. Are you standing on the promises of God? Are you? Three people only in this place are standing on the... For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know what? You know what that tells me? It tells me that I don't need to worry about what people think I'm doing for the Lord. If no one ever sees what I'm supposed to be doing for the Lord, no one ever sees it, God does. So if God is using you in, in places where, you know, not a whole lot of people are seeing it, it's okay. God sees you. 
Don't ever worry about the labor that God has called you to do. Do it as unto the Lord and not unto man. And I bring that up because in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, the next chapter, Paul says, watch, watch ye, stand fast in the faith. And he says, quit you like men. I love this phrase in the King James. Quit you like men. You know what he's saying? Quit being a coward and be brave and be strong. Don't be like the world that can cower and hide behind things. You stand fast on me and on my promises. Go back to the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 3. Everybody knows this passage, right? Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Health to you. Trusting the Lord. Not leaning on our understanding. Not acknowledging ourselves above God. Trust in Him. Watch and trust. So getting back to our text, and i am got to fly now. Getting back to our text, the, the Lord did cause a deep sleep to fall on Abraham and would assure him of the promised seed's triumphant future down through the coming ages. So let's read verses 12 through 16. It says, And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land that is not theirs. Wow. We all know that to be uh, Egypt, don't we? Later on, many years later, Abraham would not be alive. Abraham would not be alive. But, you know, the children of Israel, they would be taken into captivity in Egypt. And they would be there for 400 years. They would be in a land that is not theirs. You know, that's a, that, that's a type of something for us. Because today we are living in this world. And this world is our Egypt. This world is Egypt. The only thing is, we are not in slavery to this world. And we are not citizens of this world. The Bible says, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we are citizens of heaven. So that's what we need to remember here. But because we are citizens of heaven, we are going through, we are sojourning, we are just passing through, but we are in a place that can be considered as Egypt, the world. So... It says, they shall serve them and they shall afflict them for 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. So God is saying, that nation that is afflicting your your sons that are yet to come, I'm going to judge them. And afterward shall they come out with great substance. And we know what happened, and we'll talk about it in a moment, but we know what happened. After they left Egypt, they left with a lot of the spoils of Egypt. And then it says in verse 15, And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. God is telling Abraham, You're going to die, but you'll go in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. What he's telling him is, you know, you're going to die in a good old age, and you're not going to see all this stuff happen. But believe that it's going to happen. But in the fourth generation, he says, They shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. I'm not going to go into great deal, detail about the Amorites here, but later on, of course, the Amorites are a tremendous enemy to Israel, and God has to deal with them and judge them, and he will. And I'll talk about it in just a moment. So anyway, we'll take this passage, and we see that the Lord doesn't really start out with very comforting words. 
I mean, Abraham's descendants are going to be slave in Egypt, slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They're going to face a, a tremendous affliction in their captivity. Now, Abraham could have easily said, you know what, Lord, if that's the case, if that's what's going to happen to my children, then you know what, I, uh, I don't need children. I don't want children. Uh, I don't want them. It's a nice thought. Nice gesture, but if that's what's going to happen to them, no. He could have said that. But he didn't. Here's the point. Maybe you have said something similar to that in life. Maybe you have said something like this. You know, I don't really want to go down that path if it's going to be painful or if it's going to be hard. Don't acknowledge it, but I bet you've said it. God has kind of showed you this path that he wants you to go, and you say, yeah, I don't know, Lord. Or maybe some of you have just said, nope, not me, no, no way, no how, I ain't going down that road. God said, I want you to go down that road. No, no, no. Lord, give me another road. Any other road? Can't this be like, let's make a deal? Three doors instead of one? You know? How about that? Door number one, Lord? No. We oftentimes do that, don't we? We don't want to go down the road of pain, of affliction, of suffering. Who does? But what is it that we're forgetting? We're forgetting that God says, you know what? I'm going to be with you. He promised he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He said he promised to be with us all the way to the end of the age. So even though we certainly look uh, oftentimes at, at things like this, and what happens? We forget what? We forget that out of the pain there is good that will come. We forget that. We forget it. For God will use the pain and the affliction in our lives some way, somehow, and He'll always use it for good. Is that, what, is that not what Paul told us in Romans eight twenty eight? And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to His purpose. Have we not be assured that, that even though we're going to face trials and tribulations, even Jesus Himself told us, in this world you will have tribulations, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Time and time again, the scriptures are telling us we are going to go through afflictions. As a matter of fact, the psalmist in Psalm 119 verse 71 says, It is good for me that I have been afflicted. It is good for me to have gone down that path. Why? Because I have learned the statutes of God. It is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. We will learn from the things that we go through that are sometimes painful, that are sometimes of uh, heavy burdens on our hearts. But God said, I'll be with you. And so the Lord tells Abraham that he will bring them back into the land of Canaan. He will bring his children back into the land of Canaan, the land of promise, after the iniquity of the Amorites has been completed. And again, I'm not going to talk about the Amorites a whole lot right now, but understand this, that God, because God is just, he wished to permit the sin of the Amorites to be full before he would judge them. In other words, until they just went fully all out, uh, sinful against his people, then God would judge them. God would tolerate their sins until Israel under Joshua, as a matter of fact, going that far, far uh, along in, the, in, in history, that uh, under Joshua, Israel would conquer the promised land of Canaan. And so Abraham's seed would get the land, but not one hour before absolute justice required it. And God would deal that. We'll talk about it, uh, the Amorites later. And, and by the way, again, the Israelites did leave Egypt after their servitude 
there was uh, with, with great substance. Uh, we see that in Exodus 12, verses 35 and 36. The children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And by the way, when they borrowed, they borrowed it for, for good. <laughs> and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians, which doesn't mean that they spoiled them like you spoil your children, you know, making them cheapless. No, that's not what it means. What it means is they took their spoils <laughs> and left them without anything. But uh, anyway, we'll get to, to that in Exodus one of these days. But in verse 15 of our text, Abraham is told that he would go in peace to his fathers in a good old age. In other words, a friend of God now was, because of all the things that God has told him, and he says, you're going to go in peace. Your heart will be right with me. And so that was what Abraham needed to hear from God. Because now the friend of God was convinced that the Lord was true and that his promises were certain, even though he himself would not see their accomplishment. He trusted God. It isn't that he was vacillating between doubt and, 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 and trust. But he, he is, as we would ourselves, won a reassurance. And God gave it to him. And so Abraham rested on the word of God alone, and he needed no other guarantee. I mean, this was enough. This was peace for him. He was justified, and his path would shine more and more unto the perfect day, echoing the words of Proverbs 4.18. But the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. Now, he trusted the Lord even before the Lord cuts the covenant. So as Abraham is sleeping, or maybe he's still he's just groggy from the deep sleep that he had been under, he sees God do an amazing thing. And if you get anything today, just get this. I hope you've gotten everything else too. But get this. You need to get this. He sees God do an amazing thing. God passes through the animal parts all by himself while Abraham is watching from the sidelines. He's watching God cut the covenant for both parties. Abraham does not walk with him. Had Abraham walked with him, the very first moment that Abraham would fail God, he would be cut in half. Think about it. God cut the covenant alone. But for Abraham. It came to pass that when the sun went down, And it was dark. Behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, Unto thy seed have I given this land. Take note of the words, have I given. From the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Kadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites and the Stalagmites and the Stalactites and the Termites. I just want to make sure you're still awake. You're still with me. All right. I'll, I'll show you the land without the stalagmites and stalactites next week. We'll start there. What's important here is what the Lord did in representing himself 
in cutting the covenant. The Lord represented himself with two emblems, a smoking furnace or a smoking oven, and a burning lamp or a burning torch. The smoking furnace would remind us of the pillar of God representing the presence of God, the smoke of Mount Sinai, and the cloud of God's glory. Remember the pillar of of cloud by day that uh, led the children of Israel in the wilderness? The pillar of cloud by day, the presence of God. And then the burning torch reminds us of the pillar of fire as well, representing the presence of God before Moses, and the fire that sometimes consumed the sacrifices God was pleased with. The pillar of fire by night, day and night, cloud, fire, God's presence 24-7 with his people. Now, God, represented by the smoking oven and the burning torch, passed through the animal parts by himself. And as Abraham watched, God showed that this was a unilateral covenant. It was a unilateral covenant. God was signing, in effect, a covenant. Not only for himself, but for Abraham as well. Because Abraham never signed the covenant because God signed it for both of them. He cut the covenant for both of them. The Lord spoke of the greatness of the land in verse 18, as we, as we mentioned. And we'll see how big the land is. But up to this point, God had said, I will give you the land. What does he say here? Now he says, I have given. That was another reassurance for Abraham. I've given the land. It will be your children's. Understand also the unilateral covenant that God made. It is an unconditional covenant. And when we make that covenant with God, He keeps both sides of the covenant. You see the importance of Jesus Christ on the cross? You see the importance of the sacrifice of the cross? That's Jesus cutting the covenant for us. He took our place on the cross. None of us hung on the cross 2,000 years ago. He hung there for us. You see the representation? He cut the covenant. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him. What is it that Abraham did with God? He believed him. And God counted it to him for righteousness. We believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We believe that he shed his blood for our forgiveness. And we believe that three days after he was buried, he rose again from the dead. We believe. And God says, and you are justified. You're justified. Not by works of righteousness, which you have done, but according to God's mercy, he has saved you. It was according to God's mercy that he saved Abraham. It is according to God's mercy that he saves us. An old farmer was once asked how he had been so prosperous. Well, he said, I made an agreement with God that I'd give him his share. I would shovel into his bin and he would shovel into mine. Only he has a bigger shovel. Now, folks, aren't you glad that God has a bigger shovel? 
Now please, shovel into his bin. But remember, why are you so blessed? Because his shovel is bigger than ours. And he showers us with everything that we need for life and godliness through Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you one question and give you two more scriptures and then we're ready to leave. The question is, are you ready to stand upon God's promises even though we have yet to see their fullness realized? Are you ready to stand on God's promises? You see, God's faithful. And he's made his, his, his assurance known to us time and again in his word. And he never fails us. And he has never failed his word toward us. And his mercies never fail. And his compassions never fail. God is faithful. Are you ready to stand on God's promises? Good. Then understand this. I'm going to leave you with these two thoughts. First thought is this. Uh, Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9. God says through the prophet, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. You see, we don't, we don't have God. We don't have a, a, a relationship with God based on our terms. Please understand that. We must come to God according to his terms. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And lastly, Romans 11, verse 33. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. How unsearchable. Ah, I wish we could know more and more about God. And you know, every day that we get into his word, every day that we meet here and study more of his word, we do... We are granted more and more wisdom about God. But even still, we'll never know everything, will we? But what we can know of God is sure. And what we can know of God is complete. And what we can know of God is for our good. And what is that? That God is faithful. God is faithful. And Jesus is always faithful. And his Holy Spirit is always powerful. And we need to trust him in all those areas of our life. Let's be ready to stand on the promises of God because Jesus is coming and he's coming soon. Let's pray.